One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. Hey guys, welcome back. We're still talking about the gut and the role that it plays in our functional hierarchy of health, which of course is an important one. And in using the word important, it reminds me to quickly review what we talked about last time, which was the Eisenhower matrix of decision-making and task prioritization, right? We never got to actually talk about the gut in the introduction to the gut. This last episode was a little bit of a sidebar in that respect, but it relates to the idea of a functional hierarchy. So President Eisenhower, Eisenhower very quickly, who was president during World War II, classified the problems that he was faced with along the lines of both urgency and importance. And he used that framework to decide which problems needed to be handled right away because they were both important and urgent. Um, but it, he also used it to sift out the unimportant things that were clamoring for his attention, meaning something might be urgent, but not really important. And he used it to differentiate the things he needed to do himself and things that he either could delay or delegate to other people. And I mentioned that this matrix, the decision-making matrix, is taught in business schools and MBA programs and leadership courses because it is so useful. And I've taken this concept and I've applied it to health and wellness. And, you know, I, I think I ended last time talking about how many natural medicine practitioners think that no matter what's happening to someone's health, they always start with the gut. They fix the gut first. Now, like, after all, isn't there this old adage that says health begins in the gut. And yes, in many cases, in many ways it does, but that doesn't mean that fixing the gut is the best first thing to do in every single case. And honestly, that's really just lazy clinical work. So having said that, let's go ahead and put the gut into the spotlight and break this down maybe over a couple of episodes so that you get the big picture and perhaps can recognize when your own gut symptoms, if you have them, are both urgent and important such that you need to prioritize that and deal with, with it sooner rather than later as you journey back to that quality of life that you're looking for. So the first thing I want to share is that the gut is not a single entity. It is truly a system of systems, right? Sometimes it's actually hard to pinpoint where the gut sits in the overall intelligent design of the body. We've talked about the neuroendocrine immune supersystem recently and in its own episode that was episode two in this podcast. And that's where we talked about how every aspect of health and wellness is governed by the integrated and cooperative function of your brain, your hormones, and your immune system. And that these three things are really just one thing, right? Because they're so intricately tied together that you can't really separate them. And when it comes to the gut, most of us think in very simple terms, like, yeah, that's where I digest my food and I absorb my nutrients. And that's true, of course, but it really just scratches the surface of what the gut is and what the gut does. So to get started, I'm, I'm going to share five or six amazing things about your gut. Things you might know, things you might not. First is that the gut has its own 
semi-independent brain called the enteric nervous system. The word enteric simply refers to the gut. And the enteric nervous system has about 600 million neurons. That's actually more nervous system tissue than is contained in your spinal cord. And because it's so densely populated, if you will, with neurological tissue, the enteric nervous system is commonly called the second brain. In fact, there was a, a book by that title published maybe 20 years or so ago. And so this second brain in the gut talks to the first brain in your noggin to help control things like gut motility. Like that means going to the bathroom. Uh, it also controls enzyme production so you can break down protein, fats, and carbohydrates. It enhances blood flow to the gut so you can keep the gut tissue healthy and repair it. And, and it controls the tiny muscular valves that keep different compartments of your intestinal system separate. And this ensures that your stomach contents when you eat moves in one direction only from the top to the bottom of the system and prevents things that are lower in your intestinal system from refluxing back up into the top part. And I called it semi-independent. And I say that because if you sever the connection to the first brain, the second brain in your gut will still work by itself, but it will be much less efficient. And, and so the enteric nervous system, while it does have its own autonomous function, it really only works efficiently when the brain itself, the first brain in your head, um, actually works and sends signals down to the enteric nervous itself. So in, in many ways, they work together. So in one sense, your gut is very much a large portion of your nervous system. Secondly, the gut produces hormones that not only impact gut things like digestion, but which also circulate through the body and have impacts on your brain as well as your general metabolic control. Certain gut hormones get outside of the gut, go up, for example, into the brain and the brainstem area where they act like neurotransmitters, things like acetylcholine, dopamine, uh, GABA, catecholamines, etc. So we have gut hormones that go to other parts of the body, including the brain, to work like neurotransmitters. Um, some of these gut hormones can have neuroprotective effects in the brain, and they can also modulate things like insulin and energy metabolism, including the ability to burn body fat. So is the gut just simply digestive? Is it part of your nervous system because of the enteric nervous system, the second brain that lives there? Or is it part of your endocrine or hormonal system because your gut makes hormones? Or... <laughs> is a part of your immune system. And that's point number three, is that your gut stores or houses or contains about 70% of all your immune system tissue and function. It happens in the gut, specifically in the mucus producing tissue that lines your small intestine, what we commonly, what science commonly calls the mucosal immune system. So your, your gut is literally a mass of neurons and hormone cells, or I'm sorry, a, a mass of neurons and immune cells that also happen to make hormones. It's a convergence point of all three facets of the neuroendocrine immune supersystem, which is why I call it a system of systems. The fourth thing to know is that your intestinal system is actually quite long. 
I mean, you look down at your belly and you think, well, it doesn't seem like all that much can fit in there. But from your esophagus, right, where you swallow, to your anus, where you expel your food, that's about 25 to 28 feet long. Of course, that's going to depend on the size and the height of an individual. And of that 25 to 28 feet in total, the small intestine accounts for about 20 to 23 feet of that total length and as such makes up the majority of your gut. Now, sometimes people say gut and they think stomach. That's where you receive the contents of your food when you swallow. But other times we'll use the word gut in a general sense, but the vast majority of the gut is your small intestine. And if we could zoom into the cellular level, we would see that the lining of the small intestine is covered with millions of microscopic, like little finger-like projections called villi, which are used to absorb nutrients along the course of the small intestine. And if you were to take your, your intestines and split them open, of course, you're not going to do this, but <laughs> theoretically, right? If you were to take your intestines and split it open and like tease out all these little finger-like projections, these villi, and lay it all flat, it would cover a tennis court. That's how big it is, right? That's an awful lot of square footage to not just absorb nutrients or generate immune responses, but it's also an awful lot of square footage for things to go wrong. Fifth thing to know is that your gut is home to friendly bacteria that live inside us in a symbiotic relationship. And this is what we call your microbiome. Sometimes we'll, people will use the term probiotics. And so we give these friendly bacteria a nice, warm, wet, dark, nutrient-rich environment to live and play in. And in turn, they do nice things for us. That's what a symbiotic relationship is, is it's mutually beneficial. So we give them a place to live and they do nice things for us, right? Things like making certain vitamins and minerals. They can help fend off infections. They can produce anti-inflammatory compounds that keep your gut healthy and so on and so on. And these healthy gut creatures critters, I guess you could call them, interact with your gut-based immune system to create healthy, balanced, and controlled gut-based immune responses to potential infections and toxins that are either in the foods that we eat or produced by bad actors like other types of unfriendly bacteria or even some viruses that like to live in the gut, fungal species like candida or parasites. And finally, Number five or six, I guess it is, the lining of your gut, your small intestine specifically, is not just where your probiotics play with your gut immune cells, not just where we absorb nutrients into the bloodstream, but it's also the place where we get to filter out partially digested food particles, mostly proteins. Uh, we filter out toxins of various types and we prevent infections from getting through the gut into your bloodstream. And in other words, your small intestine acts like a very sophisticated filter that protects you from things that want to infect or poison you. It separates your inner biological environment from the outside environment, part of what we call the barrier system. And again, we've talked about the barrier system in uh, different episodes along the way. And when this barrier system and this filter breaks down, we call that leaky gut, or to be more scientific, intestinal permeability. And I'm sure that you've heard of that already. <clears throat> now, if I was to give you a list of things that can go wrong in the gut, 
it would read something like this. Number one, maldigestion symptoms. Like if you're not making enough hydrochloric acid or bile to break down fats in your diet or pancreatic enzymes to complete your digestion process. If we have mild, mild, maldigestion symptoms, what we see is that one or more types of foods categories cause problems. So for example, protein maldigestion, you would notice things like a big steak or maybe a big pork chop sits in your gut and feels like it's not processing. And that's often a result of low stomach acid production. Not always, but usually. And it shows up first with things like heavier animal proteins, like red meat or pork. But a lot of times people are fine eating chicken or fish. And so if you find that you're gravitating away from denser, heavier meats, like again, red meat and, and pork, but you're eating chicken and fish and your gut is tolerating that just fine, you might start thinking, well, maybe I've got some low stomach acid for whatever reason. And that's the key point to figure out. And so but maybe you're dealing with some protein maldigestion. Carbohydrate maldigestion is where various types of fibrous vegetables particularly don't break down well and may actually even show up undigested in your stool. And so particularly if we see undigested vegetable matter in your bowel movements, this is a strong indicator that you lack production or uh, supply of pancreatic enzymes. And then finally, in the maldigestion portion of this conversation, uh, if you have fat maldigestion, that usually shows up as some kind of dietary or digestive intolerance to fried and fatty foods. Or another common thing would be people burping up fish oils. This is actually a consistent sign of gallbladder issues or someone who doesn't have a gallbladder and is not able to make sufficient amounts of bile to emulsify fat to be able to absorb things properly. Another list of things that can go wrong would, uh, you know, simple things like infections of different types. And, you know, there's no set, there's no specific set of symptoms that helps us to determine if a gut infection is from a bad bacteria, a bad fungal species like candida or a parasite. But sometimes we can get clues from the CBC and the differential, like we talked about a few episodes ago. And this is why stool testing can be so helpful because we can distinguish between is it a parasite? Is it a bacteria? Is it candida? Or is it a combination of those things? And how much is there? But I, you need to know that every single bite of food that you eat has something in it that could potentially infect you, right? There's really no such thing as perfectly sterile food unless you're intentionally sterilizing things. And even though I don't know what kind of technologies we have available for us to do this on a day-to-day -day basis. But, you know, really, honestly, no matter where you source your food, if you get organic or not, if you grow it yourself, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter where you get it, how you process it, how you cook it, how you store it. Everything you swallow has got something that wants to infect you. And you have to be able to defend against that. In fact, um, you know, micro microbiologists will tell you that gut pathogens come and go all the time so that your your immune system is constantly battling potential infections literally every single day. Another problem could be inflammation, right? It's, it's another issue, obviously, and it, it can come from several triggers, including things like an inflammatory diet, like the standard American diet, or it can come from infections like we just talked about.
And inflammation has, it, it kind of lives on a scale and a spectrum. It, it can be low level, barely noticeable, or it can be very profound. And, you know, thankfully when we do things like proper stool testing, we have several different inflammatory markers that we can check to see if inflammation is a big issue. Sometimes gut inflammation is just part of a local infection. Sometimes it's part of a larger problem, a condition such as some form of irritable bowel disease like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And, and this is what we call IBD, uh, irritable bowel disease. So let me distinguish between IBD and IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome. IBD disease includes Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And, and both are typically considered intestinal autoimmunities so much like your immune system attacks your thyroid, for example, very much like that, exactly like that, just a different target. So, but your immune system obviously can target different aspects of your body, including your intestinal system, which happens in irritable, irritable bowel diseases. Crohn's disease is typically an autoimmune reaction that affects the entire intestinal system. Whereas ulcerative colitis is more regional, typically affecting only the colon. And these are different from irritable bowel syndrome. So IBD and IBS are not the same things. So IBS is typically not rooted in or caused by autoimmunity. And, and it's interesting because many research papers speak of IBS as being part of or a result of disordered communication between the first brain and the second brain, right? What we call the brain-gut axis, which is that connection between the brain in your head and the brain in your gut. And a, a very large percentage of IBS cases, which is far more common than IBD, so IBS is more common than IBD, but a very large percentage of these IBS cases are caused by an underlying infection in the upper small intestine called SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And we're talking about like up to 80% of the time, SIBO is the cause of IBS. And we'll probably end up just taking one particular episode to talk about the big picture of SIBO. It's quite common, actually. And all of these above issues can exist with or without intestinal permeability, with or without leaky gut. And there's been a lot of focus on leaky gut in the last decade, and for good reason. It's Number one, it's very common. It can be a major contributor to health and chronic disease, and it's fixable in almost every case. And like I described a moment ago, leaky gut is where we get these we get microscopic damage to the lining of the intestine, which changes the filtering capacity of the gut. So leaky gut typically means several things. Number one, the gut fails to filter out proteins and toxins and, and critters or creatures properly. It generates inflammation, which then causes further damage to the gut. But the, the inflammation generated in leaky gut by the gut can actually escape into general circulation and cause problems elsewhere. And it usually produces significant dysregulation of the gut-based immune system, where the gut can be hyper-reactive to anything that you put in it, and, and where it can also you know, fail to clear infections and toxins properly. Plus, you know, leaky gut is a, it's not the only one, but it's a leading cause of how people develop food sensitivities. Which brings me to another thing that's in this list of, hey, what can go wrong with the, the gut? the gut, food sensitivities, right? And, and, and I would say to you that if you find yourself reacting to more foods every year and every year 
the list of foods that you need to avoid is growing longer and longer, then it's likely, not guaranteed, but likely that you have some degree of leaky gut. And again, along those lines, it's quite common that healing a leaky gut can reduce your food intolerances and allow you to diversify your diet which then benefits your microbiome, which is good for your gut and your brain and everything else in oh so many ways, because the health of the gut is a large determinant of general health and metabolic control. And to go back to something that I said in the beginning of this particular episode, as we draw this one to a conclusion, is that yes, the gut is very important, but it's not always important for individual people. Like if we, sometimes we can make statements or conclusions, draw conclusions about large population groups that may or may not apply to individuals, right? True for the group, not necessarily true for the individual. So we can say as humans, gut health is very important, but any one individual person, gut health might not be an issue for them. So again, you can't assume that everyone with a health issue has a gut problem or needs to go through, for example, a gut protocol. We can also flip that around and say that what's true for the individual may not necessarily be true for the entire population. And, and this is sometimes where we run into trouble if we're getting a lot of information that we're acting on from testimonials or from other people's experiences and stories and of course, this is you know part of what the internet is for and social media is for people to have a platform to say, hey, I had this problem and this is what I did. And, and if you have these symptoms or you do these things like I did, then you're going to feel great like I do. And again, that's not always true because you and I can have both have, let's just call it a bad gut, whatever that might mean for each one of us individually. And we might follow the same protocol and you might get radically improved. You, you may get fantastic results, but that same protocol doesn't do much for me. And this is why personalized lifestyle medicine or having a personalized approach to something like functional medicine is so absolutely critical. And it's so important for your healthcare providers, whether they're conventional or alternative, it doesn't really matter, to recognize this dynamic interplay between what's true for most people and what's true for you as an individual person. Now, I'm going to leave it there for today. So in the next episode, I think what I'll do in the next episode is talk about some of the testing that are most helpful in sorting out what's wrong with your gut, just in case you do find yourself in a situation where you apply the Eisenhower matrix and decide that uh, your particular gut problems are at least important, if not important and urgent. So we'll deal with that next time right here on the Inflammation Nation. Thanks for being part of the group.